Hello, and welcome to another episode of Partner Buzz, the AWS partner-focused podcast for our business and technical leaders from our APN community. Previously, we covered how AWS partners can leverage best practices from the AWS well-architected framework to build sustainable cloud workloads. Now today, instead of focusing on sustainability in the cloud, we're diving deeper into how partners can leverage their existing skills and expertise to drive sustainability outcomes through the cloud. And it's my great pleasure to welcome Elliot Richards from the hugely popular Fully Charged show to give us a glimpse of what we can expect based on his observations across APAC. Elliot, it's great to have you with us. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. It's fantastic to have you. Um, to set us up, tell us a little bit more about your role on the Fully Charged show and, and also Everything Electric. Yeah, so I've been with a YouTube channel called The Fully Charged Show for about four years now. And, and we'll have a link in the description because I think it's a great channel. Perfect, good plug. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we've been covering renewable technology, a lot of EVs, um, mm. everything in that kind of space for the last about 12 years. Um, and from about 2020, we started covering tech, renewable right. energy, and EVs from China. And that's kind of mm. where my focus um, has been. And we've just come to Sydney for the Everything Electric Show at the mm -hmm. Sydney Olympic Showground, where we had three days of amazing technology, mm. uh, you know, heat pumps, um, solar panels, tiny homes, mm. and lots and lots of EVs. Nice. And I think one of the key points to note is EVs, obviously cool cars, but there's a lot that has to be in place within an economy, within you know manufacturing sector to actually get to a point where we actually have electric cars. Unpack a bit of that for us. Yeah, so I mean... You know, EVs are, you know, I think we said the, the sharp edge mm. uh, of, of the knife. And I think in order to get electric cars, you know, you need to build the infrastructure around it. Mm. And, you know, that's where China in particular has been very focused over the past 10 to 15 years. Yeah. And they've built up that infrastructure around um, electric cars, but it also has many other benefits mm. in other areas, um, moving China towards, you know, its green transition. Mm. I think the the infrastructure is interesting because I think folks probably don't necessarily understand, yes, we're talking about obvious things like charging infrastructure, but it's a whole different supply chain, operational model, um, manufacturing capability as well, which has to be in place before you actually get that finished product. Isn't that the case? Yeah, absolutely. So it's, you know, it's from the, you know, where the minerals are mined, you mm. know, how they're shipped across. It's everything until the, you know, finished product. And mm. China had a policy called the Made in China 2025 right. policy, mm -hmm. which came in 2015, which really accelerated this transition to renewables and just changing basically the whole economy mm. to pivot around being more sustainable, yeah. being more renewable. And so that affects the whole supply chain. And obviously what China does affects the whole world. Indeed. And I think it's particularly noteworthy for, for our listeners outside of China, because ultimately, as we have more things like mandatory ESG reporting, which we're going to cover later in the show, these are things which you have firsthand experience of over the past few years in China. I think it's really going to be great to dig into your perspective of what uh, that could look like as we go forward, especially here in Australia, for example. One of the great videos, I think, which, which you explained in the show is how the city of Shenzhen drove a complete transformation almost overnight from a from a diesel powered fleet to to fully electric and and we'll have a link in the in the description for that video but unpack a little bit of what that looked like yeah so we visited shenzhen in about 2020 2021 and right. 
we were very interested in to see how they did this. How, how can a city of, I think, 17 million people, so on a gigantic scale... Which is remarkable. I mean, the population of Australia is 26 million, so yeah. that's, that's a large city. Yeah, and it's not even one of the biggest in China. It's, mm. you know, third or fourth. Yeah. And I think we just want to see how can you transition that quickly? Yeah. How can you do that? How can you set up the infrastructure to, you know, change all your cabs to electric mm -hmm. you know how can you change all your buses to electric right. what's the infrastructure look like how do you plan that how do you plant the you know the cabling how do you supply the power mm. all these questions and it was really a remarkable um, achievement because it got all those government agencies to come together right to work together to basically this end date to say right on this date we want fully electric fleet. Working backwards from that how do we actually do it because Correct. really I think from what you've described there's there's a huge number of, of, of challenges within those constraints. We're all familiar with the fact that, you know, charging electric vehicles is very different from from fossil fuel vehicle. But there's some there's some similarities. You know, you, you have to get energy from one place to the other. But it's a different operational model too, isn't it? For example, you know, how we refuel an electric vehicle has opportunities as well. Isn't that yeah, the case? Absolutely. And what we saw there was the charging at the, the bus station. So the bus right. stations need bigger charges because um, you know, are bigger, bigger batteries, you know, <laughs> Makes sense, and then there's multiple of them which need charging at the same right. time. But they told me they don't charge it during the day. Mm. And when we looked at the buses that were charging, it's only about three or four out of the many thousand that they have. Wow. And what they do is they obviously wait until nighttime mm. when it's cheaper. Right. And then they plug it into the chargers uh, and do most of their charging then. Which is fascinating because I suppose that's, that is a constraint, but now it's created opportunity as well because y you can choose when you're, when you're charging based on you know, cost availability convenience. It's not just that you know, power or your fuel costs the same no matter when you do it, which is a great opportunity to think about how you can also think about optimizing a system going forwards as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what they're think thinking of as the next step is, okay, so what can we do to make this even more affordable or even easier for us. So mm. let's put solar panels on all of our bus charging stations. Yeah, seems Let, an obvious. Yeah, and let's put a mega pack, a mega battery pack mm. just off to the side of our bus station. Let's enjoy all of the free sunshine during the day, Yeah, charge that battery, discharge it at night. So then it almost becomes off-grid buses. You know, mm. they've got their own grid system. Which is kind of thinking about that radical decentralization. So instead of having centralized generation, you're pushing it very much close to the edge, which I suppose is an interesting analogy to cloud computing where we see a huge amount of value pushing towards the edge, you know, computation. This is a very familiar operational model that I think a lot of our AWS partners will understand. Um, and I think also the user experience is significantly better too. Yeah, so the user experience, so we spoke to a couple of bus drivers mm. uh, and taxi drivers, and all of them were, were full of praise because... Uh, the bus buses are easier to drive. You know, they don't smell. Mm. Uh, the ride is smoother for passengers. Of course. And they just said the, the whole experience is just so much easier. And then mm. they said the charging experience for them was actually a delight. Right. Especially with the taxis. So instead of going to a, a fuel station, mm. spending five minutes to, you know, fill up and then having to go back to work, mm. they've got these big relaxation centers. Right. And there's, there's many of these within Shenzhen. And mm. in there, you can go and get a massage. You can uh, go and get a doctor's appointment wow, okay. with an online doctor. Mm. So you go into a little, little booth and speak to a doctor online. Wow. So, you know, maybe, you know, your legs hurt from driving too much and they can give you a diagnosis <laughs> and give you medicine. So all of these, you know, benefits that they actually get from driving electric 
rather than before, you know, having to rush around, fill up with petrol and go back out again. Interesting. So the user experience significantly better from those operating within the within the, the industry and those using it as customers, which I think is, is yeah, remarkable. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that model has now been replicated. So not just in Shenzhen, mm. you know, it's now in Shanghai, it's now in Beijing, it's now in Chongqing. So everyone's switching over to the electric model. Interesting. Just because it just makes so much more sense. One of the key points that I think was a bit of a light bulb moment for me watching that video is when you were inside the the control center. Yes, that was just mind boggling. The amount of data you had had coming in. Walk us through that. Yeah, that was uh, that was a real delight for me. I I stepped in that room. They said, "Oh, this is our big data screen." I thought, "Oh, okay, that's interesting." Mm. Oh no, it's live data from all of our sixteen thousand buses and twenty two thousand taxis. taxis yeah, I think. and and wow. I couldn't believe it. So you saw all these dots on the map of Shenzhen. Mm. They were individual taxis, individual buses. And it gave us the state of charge of the bus, mm. uh, how many passengers were on the bus. You know, there's so much data that you get from each individual vehicle, mm. which means that on a on a bigger scale in headquarters, yeah. they can see, okay, you know, this route maybe needs some more uh, you know, charging soon for these buses, right. or there's too much load on, you know, this charging area. So you can actually start to dynamically control how the network works in real time as opposed to, setting up a fixed timetable, you know, months or years in advance. Yeah, and then you can see where's the traffic jams at 8 o'clock mm. in the morning? Should we change the route? Can we make this route more efficient? Mm. Um, and, you know, it just gave you so much valuable data yeah. that they could really optimize and make their trips more efficient. And I think the most important one was it was tracking how many kilometers collectively right. they all did per day. And we got there about 10 o'clock in the morning. Right. And it said over 1 million kilometers. Gosh, by 10 a.m. By about 10 a.m. Wow. I thought that is, that, that's you know, remarkable. All that diesel or petrol mm. is no not going into built. the atmosphere. So that's yeah, staggering. That's fantastic. I think the, the data piece is, is quite remarkable. Like we're well, well aware that if you can monitor, um, you know, monitor plant or assets or, and, and think about predictive maintenance, that can you know, ensure you've got less disruption. All that requires data. And I think what you've described is how the availability of data has improved not just the ability to drive this transformation, but also deliver the ability to actually manage that better long term in that uh, instead of being reactive, you can actually get proactive. And I'd imagine that um, you know the opportunities around predictive maintenance purely from that data will reduce costs, reduce outages, and really just provide a much smoother experience at a low cost as well, I'd imagine. Yeah, it's all about efficiencies because, you know, public transportation, they want it to be the most efficient public transportation, mm. uh, you know, system in the world, the metro as well. Yeah. Um, and th- that's what they can do with with that data mm. insights. And then that's something that can be replicated in other cities. Mm. They can learn from it and they can, and what they actually do is they have other governments coming in from right. overseas I think they're talking to like a, a government from uh, Chile, for example, mm. who came in to learn from how the system works, how they can make it more efficient. Yeah, therefore saving you know companies money in the long run. So potentially all the investment that that they placed into building what is effectively a really fantastic city scale pilot has really accelerated other cities to be able to deliver this as well. Fundamentally, because of that access to data and the ability to drive that efficiency through scale, through that sharing of learning. Yeah, and the great thing is Shenzhen is the home of BYD. That's where most right. of the electric buses are made. Mm. Um, so if you link up with them, you know, you can, you know, BYD can then share that data with, you know, the Shenzhen bus company, I think they right. were called. And then that can be used in London, in mm. Sydney. You know, it, it's 
it benefits everyone in the end. Mm. Um, all of this, you know, data collecting. Yeah. So really, I think it's interesting that that the data has created value. And I think this is something which we talked with our AWS partners about a lot. If you can reduce costs through operational efficiencies, but to really start to double down and create value, we have to access and unlock data. And it sounds like that's exactly what they've done, which is fascinating. Yeah, and uh, you know, it's the data that they collect in China is obviously large because mm. there's you know there's over 1.2 billion people. Yeah. They're all using you know public transport, mm. and it's such a, a wide amount of data that is so valuable mm. um, that they can you know it's not just public transport. They can then share that with car companies or yeah. autonomous dr car driving companies yeah. or the traffic network. Mm. So, for example. Um, as of the last six months, in your GPS in your car, yeah, um, it will link up now with the traffic lights. Mm, okay. So the traffic light will say it's got about 30 seconds left, and that will show up on your car GPS now. Fascinating. Um, and that has come in in the last uh, kind of six months, and they were trialing that about two years ago. Interesting. Using the, these 4G or 5G networks. Mm. Uh, and now, so it makes such a more efficient transportation system so roads become less congested you know mm -hmm. taxis can make their journeys quicker they're, they're more affordable it's just about massive efficiency yeah. and saving time which also then allows you to make more um, considered investments yes where if you understand exactly where those hot points are put the investment where it's needed it's significantly more efficient saving time as well i think which is which is great what i find is quite mind-boggling is the fact that this was a video that you made about three years ago. Yes. So instead of talking about the fact that the future is now, the future is actually three years ago. Correct. Which I think is even more food for thought. And what I love about this conversation is that you're able to paint a picture of what potentially we could expect as we move into um, you know, the re renewables transition that we, we have happening here in Australia, for example. So yeah, I absolutely. I think, I don't want to say we're living in the future, but you know we are. And I think what's happening in China now mm. will be replicated across other countries in the future because they have the scale to do things very quickly. Mm. They have the resources. So it makes sense to learn from that experience Absolutely. as opposed to having to replicate from scratch. Absolutely. Yeah, which is more efficient. Um, that I think is amazing. I mean, that, that kind of that kind of picture of, of what drove that transition is something I'd love to dig into. Where did that, um, where did that understanding that the renewable future was something China had to lean into, where did that come from? I mean, there was multiple points really, but I would say the the biggest one was probably the the visibility of of the pollution. So, right. you know, China from you know the early two thousands up until I don't know twenty twelve mm. was you know growing every year. GDP was you know off the charts, mm -hmm. and that's because they were producing so much in their factories. Yeah, um, you know the West had has for a long time uh, you know shipped over its industries to China. Mm. So you know people in London have very clean air. People mm -hmm. in Sydney have you know, mostly clean air because industry has moved to China. Mm. But the result of that was massive pollution, Interesting. which was horrific. And you saw it every day. Now, back when I arrived in China about 2008, mm. you just thought it was fog. Yeah. We didn't actually know. And then we soon realized after you know, a few years, oh, actually, this is pollution. It's not good. Mm. But there was a pivotal moment, uh, I think, in about 2015, I think it was. Right. And... Uh, a lady produced a documentary called Under the Dome. Mm -hmm. uh, she had just given birth to her child. Right. And she was worried about the pollution in the air. Will it affect her, her child's upbringing, her development? Mm -hmm. And so she produced this documentary sanctioned by the government, mm. basically saying, 
we're living in this awful environment which has been created by all of these factories here mm. we need to do something about it we need to clean this up or forever we're going to be suffering from the effects of of pollution mm -hmm. and that was really interesting because it was not against the government so much but it was criticizing the lax environmental standards right. uh, in the country and that was really a pivot point where people started thinking and caring about the environment you know we mm. can't keep destroying the country that we're living in we mm. can't keep you know, chopping down trees or polluting, th you know, rivers. We have to actually think about this seriously. And then that, for me, was kind of the, the, the point where everything changed. People started thinking. It had something like 500 million views in 24 hours. Wow. Uh, and it had such a massive impact on, on the country. And I think from that point on, everything has been much more focused on making the environment better. So we talk at, at Amazon about being very customer-focused, customer-obsessed. And I think... I'd love to dive a little bit deeper into how that's actually transitioned to customer perspectives and expectations today around sustainability. Um, I think when we were preparing for the show, you mentioned that it seems very normal, very BAU, but that, that clearly must have been a bit of a journey, I think, for, for folks. How, how did customer perceptions change? Because I think that's something which our partners need to be aware of as we will go through this transition here. Yeah, so, I mean, it was approached from most, multiple angles, really. Mm. I think, um, you know, large, it started off with a large you know, the government state-owned enterprises which said, okay, right. we need to do something about this. Mm. So they were the first ones which kind of set it in motion. Mm. Then we started seeing the growth of EVs. Now that was a huge turning point because you started seeing these cars on the road with green number plates. You thought, oh, what's that? Okay, interesting. Um, and I, you know, there's a lot of discussion, especially in the UK, oh, should we have this green strip on the number plate? Of course, because it raises awareness mm. that these, are, these electric cars and that more and more people are driving them. Uh, and so you started seeing this growth, uh, you know, in China. It was mostly fleets at the beginning, okay. you know, government-owned cars. Uh, and then it started becoming um, much more obvious right. that things were changing. There were charges popping up everywhere. Mm -hmm. Solar panels were going on roofs. People were, you know, worried about the, the local river. And then the government started cleaning it up. And now people swim in it. Wow, and it's which has just, been quite a remarkable change. Absolutely. There's this mm. river in Beijing, which when I was there back in 2008, you would not swim in. Mm. Back in the 1960s, everyone swam in it, but That's the pollution had been so bad. Now people are swimming back in it again in 2023, 2024. Mm. So I think it's these visible, um, clear changes that have taken place. That have uh, actually driven a cultural change almost as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing is people are allowed to have obviously more than one child now mm. the government's actively encouraging it because of the declining birth rate mm. and people are much more worried about the health of their children in the future mm. you know that encompasses many different areas so what the food they eat yeah where have these vegetables come from has it come from contaminated soil mm. you know i only want the best and they don't want to keep importing it from other countries you know uh, they want to have good quality stuff um for their own children i think one of the biggest pivot points was the the baby milk scandal, right? Where yeah. they had tainted uh, baby milk and and some babies uh, you know, died because of it, mm. and they were thinking, well, what what are we doing to our children? Why are we doing this? Why are we poisoning our environment? Poisoning our children? Mm. What can we do to change this? And you know, it spread spread from you know the children to the grandparents, and everyone started being much more aware of of what they were putting into their bodies, their mm. environment around them. Which I think is certainly echoes when you start thinking about understanding what is in your supply chain, being able to trace the provenance of, of, of goods, making sure that what you have, you actually answer where it came from. And I think that's something which um, a lot of our partners are looking at 
thinking about how we can drive supply chain integration solutions around that as well, which I think is critically important for that mindset and that customer demand. Absolutely. And the key is China's a very tech-focused nation. So mm. you know, everyone has their, their phones and they've mm. got these super apps. Yeah. And the super apps will track, you know, they buy everything on the super apps mm. and they can track things now. So if you want to track where your vegetables have come from the farm, wow. you can now track that using either blockchain technology mm -hmm. in the back end or um, you, know, you can track down who the farmer is. You can see a, you know, a message from the farmer. You can track exactly where it's gone. And now customers are now using this uh, technology. They might not realize they're using it. Uh, to track, you know, where their food has come from, and I think that's that's really important. Which is a which is an expectation now, yes. Because that level of supply chain transparency has gone right down to people doing their grocery shopping. Exactly, which is fascinating. I think normally we think in terms of, um, you know, here it, it's a corporate level concern, mm. but I think from what you've described, it's actually gone all the way down through the supply chain right to the end user, the end consumer, which is fascinating. Something else which uh, you spoke about is. The ability to leverage technology to make all of this affordable and accessible. Um, here in Australia, electric vehicles are still largely an expensive prestige item. You mentioned that being able to invest in things like public transport, make it more affordable and accessible, means that suddenly sustainability isn't isn't a choice for those who are more prosperous. There's, it's far more accessible. Walk us through that and the impact that's had. Yeah, so you know, I think China's all about you know getting everyone out of poverty. They they moved something like 800 million people out of poverty in the last. 20 or 30 years mm. and so you know about making it more level playing field it shouldn't just be for the rich people mm. to own these you know electric cars or electric vehicles you know so the the affordable option now or the the normal option is electric anything yeah so for example the scooters in shanghai they won't you won't find any petrol gas scooters mm. in shanghai um, everyone has an electric scooter it might have a lead acid battery mm -hmm. but it's the more affordable option right it also means they can do battery swapping. It means mm -hmm. they can track, you know, where the next battery swapping station is for their electric bike. Mm -hmm. um, and this is for people who do, you know, the deliveries. Right. You might, you know, deliver your vegetables or your groceries. Mm. Um, and so it's really permeated through throughout whole, the whole society. Mm -hmm. And they've been able to keep, you know, metro prices, for example. It's okay. about 40 cents a ticket mm. to go anywhere in Shanghai. You can go about 50 kilometers for about that price. Mm. And so, you know, it's just, just the, the normal option, mm. whereas using, you know, uh, fossil fuels is seen as the expensive option. Right. And so it's all about this, obviously, the, the, the price and the, the added benefit is that the environment won't suffer so much. Mm. I think it's really interesting because certainly we see um, rooftop solar, for example, being mm. one of the largest size of, of, of photovoltaic generation in Australia. And I think we're all acutely aware of the cost of living pressures and how electricity prices are a major part of that. Thinking about the, the cost driver, being able to get that to price parity and below will be something which can only be unlocked through the application of technology. Um, but I think also you mentioned uh, public policy was critical there as well. And um, I think as, as we in Australia are moving towards our net zero target of 2050, things like a mandatory um, environmental sustainability governance reporting, ESG reporting has been a, a very key part of that to move forward. We've got ESG um, legislation, which is going to be taking into, account this, into effect this year. Um, that's not a new thing in China, is it? That's, that's a path no. that has been, been well-trodden, I think. Unpack that for us. Yeah, so 
they started ESG reporting back in 2012, and right. that was with the insurance and back banking sectors, first of all. Which is interesting, because normally you'd think that would be large-scale manufacturing and, and emitters, but why, why the interest in banking and insurance? I think because they already had the, the data sets in place. You know, they have you know, a wide number of customers. They have you know, systems behind it already, whereas the manufacturing at that stage was not particularly high-tech. Interesting. So those sectors already had things like, um, you know, reporting requirements for, for risk and compliance, which is fairly familiar to where a lot of our, our partners work in, in FSI, I would think. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So, you know, China has a fair amount of bureaucracy, bureaucracy as you can imagine. Hmm. So these companies are used to reporting, doing lots of reports, reporting back to the government. So it's an incremental type of reporting almost. Correct. So it's just okay. a, an, an addition at that stage. It was, you know, another a step they needed to take. So they've had it in that sector um, since 2012. Mm. Um, and then it moved into other sectors. Um, later on, I think it was in 2016, mm -hmm. they moved it in as part of that Made in China 2025 right. uh, policy. Uh, they moved it into the other sectors as well. And then I think by about 2020, 2021, all state-owned enterprises, so that's the massive conglomerates, mm. whether it be cars, rice, whatever it is, mm. they have um, standardized um, reporting that they have to do. Right. Um, so that it's now become very normal, very much part of very their everyday. Just an additional type of ESG reporting Correct. normally doing. Which is interesting because I think that's an example of normalizing that is going to be absolutely critical. I think in Australia we're looking at having, you know, um, most businesses to a certain size um, will have to have, you know, scope one, two and three emissions reporting by 2030. And that'll be phased in from our larger emitters as part of our safeguard program all the way down to our smaller businesses. And um, thinking about how the data aggregation requirements are going to be quite remarkable in order to keep that cost of reporting down. Um, I think you had a really good story about how um, an insurance company were able to leverage that data. Walk us through that. Yeah, so there's a big insurance company uh, mm -hmm. in China, one of the largest, uh, and they were able to, with technology, with data, really s scale down that period of reporting. Mm. Whereas I think at the moment it takes some companies many, many months to report. Yeah. They managed to uh, squeeze it down to just 22 days Gosh. Um, to do that reporting. So then it almost becomes a monthly thing or just part of the day-to-day. -day. Mm. Um, it's a very big change. Which I think also means if you've got that level of frequency of reporting, you've almost got that near real-time visibility of emissions. So you can then, once you measure something, you can improve it. Um, anecdotally, some folks I've spoken to in the space talk about you know spreadsheets, paper-based. It takes you know, 11 months or so to, to collate that information manually, which is terrible because that means you can't actually drive that actionable insight that you need. And I think that's a really fantastic opportunity for our partners to leverage the expertise they've got around that data aggregation. I mean, thinking about what you described in Shenzhen, being able to get that real-time visibility requires a, a really sophisticated view of things like IoT, you know, sensor aggregation, visualization, machine learning, putting that together to build forecasts, which certainly can help your reporting. But I think also if we can encourage um, you know, our partners to think about how can they add value with that data. I think if, you've, if you had to aggregate that data to begin with, you've made that investment for reporting purposes now, how can you unlock the value in that data? Now, create value instead. I think that's going to be really quite fascinating. Yeah, it will. You know, if you do that shorter reporting time, it, it will become a fundamental part of your business, mm. and it will drive efficiencies. It will, you know, like you said, add value to your company. It's not just a tick box exercise, which I yeah. think it, it might feel like sometimes at the moment. Mm -hmm. It can actually make real fundamental changes to your business, mm. and I think that's what's important. 
And that value creation is interesting because you spoke to me about how it's dramatically reducing time to time to value, which which blew my mind. Talk us through that story. <laughs> yeah. So typically, I was uh, I was speaking to a CEO of a Chinese electric car company, and they say typically a German company, for example, would take about three years to develop a car. Right. They got to test. You got to you know learn, and it takes a long time. Lots of engineers, probably lots of meetings. Uh, they said in China, he said he wanted a sedan. Mm-hmm. And he wanted it very quickly. Mm-hmm. So from him saying that to his team, mm-hmm. to the car being on the market, took eight months. Which you can only really do if you've got that maturity in in data modeling, the ability to actually drive operationally efficient supply chains. So again, it kind of comes all the way back to all the bits and pieces you've got to have in place beforehand, which has now dramatically reduced that that time to value, which is which is great. So they've got, you know, they've got all of the ingredients. They've got all of that data from mm. their many millions of cars they've sold for the past, I don't know, 20 years or so. Yeah. And now they can really supercharge, you know, their development process. Mm-hmm. So, you know, testing, you know, the uh, the wind tunnel testing can right. be done via computers. Mm-hmm. It can be done virtually. It can be done very quickly on, you know, these huge uh, computers. Mm. And then, you know, testing designs and they know what, motors are the most efficient they know what batteries are the most efficient mm-hmm. they know the software they need to use for the typical user in china across 99 percent of its journeys That's so right. you know it can really uh, tailor this car to that market and chances are that car will sell much better than the legacy car brand which after that three years is already three years behind this chinese car so it's that immediacy of data and much the same as i think a lot of our a lot of our partners that work around generating say customer 360 this this should sound very familiar to them because ultimately this is what they do already in a slightly different sphere but now thinking about how that value can be unlocked to create from that vast pool of data that you need for that es3 reporting which is critically important in its own right but now it doesn't necessarily have to be something that costs you money it actually creates and unlocks value too i think if um if we can empower folks to think about what that could look like, that's going to become hugely valuable to customers because they can then see the tangible benefits. And one of the things I think you've spoken about a lot is that um, these are IT companies. So they will actually need folks who've got that deep expertise in cloud, in IT, to actually unlock that to make it work. Yeah, they're, they're, not, yeah, they're not specifically IT companies. They're, you know, they're manufacturing companies mm. who are pivoting much more towards software yeah, because they know software is the key to to unlocking. But that's not their core business necessarily. No. Yeah. Um, but they know that's so important to to driving those efficiencies mm. and creating value. We often talk about um, partners positioning themselves as trusted advisors for customers, and I think this is going to be a challenge. Which, through um, the learnings, for example, that, that that you've shared with us, will be a fantastic way to help our partners be that trusted advisor to help those customers look around corners at what they're going to be seeing next. I think um, really when you think about what's already happening today, um, I think you mentioned blockchain being a great enabler for doing supply chain management. Um, there's there's data that unlocks value. Mm. And I think um, you, you had a few industrial applications you mentioned, I think. Um, drones as well in agriculture, which is everyone loves drones. Um, yeah. Take us through that story. Yeah. So obviously the big um, drone manufacturer in China um, who produces most of the drones mm. used around the world. Uh, and they make commercial drones. And what they're doing is helping agriculture in China. Now, right. agriculture up until a few years ago was quite uh, basic. Mm. You know, it's you know, poorer people in the countryside with, you know, only very basic um, technology. But what they've been able to do is 
send these drones in for a few days. Mm. It doesn't cost very much. They've trained something like 40,000 drone pilots. Wow. Uh, and there's something like 120,000 agricultural drones now in China. Gosh. And they can, you know, create rice, which is 20% more efficient. Mm. Uh, you know, gives them 20% more yield, for wow. example. And so that farmer then can make 20% more money. Mm. And then they can invest in maybe some better technology for themselves or just improve their lives. And so what, you know, is te technology has really uplifted everyone in the, in the whole country, whether they're, you know, a rural farmer in mm. the middle of nowhere or someone who lives in the city. Everyone benefits from this data mm. that is being aggregated in the cloud. I think that makes a huge amount of sense because ultimately, again, it all comes back down to data, doesn't it? Typically, the sustainability journey that, that I think we see at AWS is that it all starts off with that ability to understand where you need to be. Uh, and that could have a number of business drivers, but fundamentally, there's that strategy that needs to be put in place and that advisory piece. But then it comes down to um, you know complying with things like ESG reporting. And I think this is something that our partners, especially in the FSI space, are, are well aware of how to handle. And I think you hit the nail on the head where it's just an incremental concern. But it's going to become a little bit more um, wider reaching than that mm. because there'll be different sources of data to be integrated. Uh, but then once you've got that data and you're doing that reporting, unlocking value, think about optimization is critical. And then moving on to that transition through these like individual industry vertical plays, which I think are fantastic. And I think if that's the mental model, we have partners who already have got great capability in these spaces who I think are set up for success uh, to drive this. Yeah, we've got partners who've got great sustainability um, advisory practices, reporting and compliance. You know, that's something which we've got great capability with. And then those partners who go super deep in industry, we often talk about that strong industry focus here at AWS. I think you've really um, nailed why that's important, because if you're not an IT customer, but you understand that software and computing is something to actually drive that outcome, you need a trusted partner who can help you get there. Um, who can help you look around those corners. And I think without, uh, without this sort of insight, it's very difficult. Our partners will largely be reactive. So this has been fantastic. I really appreciate the, uh, the insights you shared with us earlier today. Yeah, thank you. It's been delightful to be here. That's all we've got time for today. But I hope it's given our audience some really good insights on how we can work better together to serve our AWS customers. Thank you for spending the time with us today, Elliot. Yeah, thank you very much. And for me, thank you for listening to this episode of Partner Buzz. Please make sure that you subscribe to the show so that you never miss an episode. And we look forward to you joining us next time. But Elliot, I think the last word should be yours. Okay. I'm Elliot Richards. This has been the AWS Partner Buzz podcast. And thank you for watching. Thank you. <laughs>